0: Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. This morning we're going to work our way through verses 14 through 17. But I want to read for you for the sake of context, as has been our practice. We're going to continue working through this section little by little, trying to recognize the clarity and the importance of the whole section together as we slowly work through it. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore... in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, we thank You for Your grace and faithfulness. We thank You that You are a God of plans and purpose. That You are not confused, Father, by the distinction of Jew and Gentile. Uh, that you intentionally made that distinction, that we might know it is not those who are near to what you say who ought to have hope if their hope is in their own righteousness. But those who hear what you say, by your grace, realize they are broken, are those who can proclaim the truth of their nearness. That it is by faith and by grace alone that you would save anyone. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. Thank you, Father, for the minds that you have given your people. Thank you, Father, that we can read. We thank you for the grace of our, our time and our location. We thank you that as Gentiles we live at a time where we have been brought near and your word is near to us pray You would give us grace, Father, not to live as those who proclaim our own self-righteousness, but we would draw near and be broken by the truth, and be healed by Your promises. Thank You for Your faithfulness to unite all things in Christ. I pray, Father, You would unite us that we might be the messengers of reconciliation. To You. For you, to others, that you might be worshipped as you ought to be. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Ephesians two, eleven through twenty-two. Again, this morning, this morning, focusing on fourteen through seventeen, uh, for the sake of letting our minds dwell on it more. Let me read for you again, verses fourteen through seventeen. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. As you read this, maybe some words stick out to you. I hope lots of them. One is hostility. We live in a society that is hostile. We live in a society that is hostile because all societies since the fall, all people since the fall are hostile. There is a hostility in man that is the symptom of the problem of man, which is sin. Pride within man causes hostility against one another. We see that immediately in the fall. God comes to Adam and what does Adam do? He does not say, Lord, I have sinned. He says, it's the woman that you gave me. He blames her and he blames God. What does Eve say? She does not say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. She said, it was the serpent who deceived me. And Satan had already made his choice. He was rebelling against God. And as we think, things must unite us. Things like ethnicity and culture. We have sayings like, blood is thicker than water. But that blood in Cain and Abel did not end the hostility. Two men who could not have been closer... The sons of the first man and woman, no dividing lines of blood, no mixed in their familial blood. They were the only ethnicity, the sons of Adam and Eve, and yet those men could not live without hostility. And in conflict and in sin, more clearly, Cain killed Abel. The remains. We we'll live in a society that recognizes the hostility, but fails to recognize the solution to hostility. In 2001, a man created something uh, for an art festival uh, that was requested to talk about how people could coexist. And you are probably familiar with later versions of this art. But what he did was he took the, the Muslim symbol of the moon and the star... He took the Jewish symbol of the Star of David, and he took a cross, and he worked those into the word coexist, in saying that these groups should be able to coexist. Later versions have added uh, both the male and female symbol of the cross on the circle, and other symbols to state that people should just coexist. It is a a symbol and a sign embraced by our society because we live in a society that loves the idea of tolerance. What is the solution to the hostility for our society? To tolerate. To tolerate one another. And as you listen to many wiser speakers than myself, I'm sure you have heard often, toleration does not work when you are intolerant Of those who will not tolerate there is no sense in which you can unite around the idea of tolerance there must be something to measure by you cannot have unity around having nothing there is no unity in saying nothing matters except us being unified what we are uniting around is humanity We are saying, what makes us wonderful is us. Therefore, set aside anything else but us, but me, and if necessary, you, because you reflect me as another person. There's grave misconception. If we want to unite around humanity, we will, like Cain and Abel, only find ourselves unable to unite never united always talking and never accomplishing or as Timothy is told by Paul of false teaching always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth and we live in a society that would love to proclaim coexistence but yet in proclaiming that they are claiming that these three groups particularly Muslims Jews and Christians who claim there is authority on earth must do something. They must deny ultimate authority to get along. And they want to point to that religion and the holding to ultimate authority is what has divided the world. And I would agree that religion divides. Personal beliefs held about the ultimate truth of life and eternity will divide. It will naturally divide. It must divide. If there is absolute truth of death and life, that truth must be known. And if it is a life and death matter, it must not be debated. It must be submitted to. There are many things in life that this is the case. You want to kill someone, they don't say, Tolerance. Have tolerance. They want to murder someone. Why are you so judgy? Let them do what they want to do. Why in that area do we not have tolerance? Because it is life and death matter. The matters of life and death make clear that man is not unified and cannot be. The Word of God makes clear that man will never be unified outside of Christ. We know no unity. We know no lasting peace. We know no reconciliation that will endure that comes outside of Christ. Right? The, the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the peacemakers because they are sons of God. Why are they blessed? Because they're sons of God. The one God. What are they blessed because they do? Not because they live in peace. What do they do? They make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers and it is the peacemaker, Christ, who is the only means of our peace. We're going to look at three things this morning about Christian peace and Christian unity. Christian reconciliation. There is no place for disunity in the church, but there is no place for unity founded on anything else but Christ. There is no place for disunity in the church, but there is no place for unity found on anything else but Christ. To seek to find our unity in anything but Christ can give us comfort, but it cannot bring lasting peace. Three things from this passage. The person of our peace, who is Jesus Christ. The power of our peace, salvation. And the preaching of our peace, proclaimed by Christ for all. The person of our peace, Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. It is an emphatic statement, meaning it gives additional emphasis to state what it's talking about, right? That's what the word emphatic means. I use it, but I often think, do I know what that means? Do I keep using that word and it does not mean what I think it means? So I looked it up, and I was spelling it wrong. That's why I couldn't spell check it. I was spelling emphatic, or emphatic, and it is emphatic. English language is so confusing with its vowels. But emphatic, with an E, Emphasizing. It's emphasizing something. And here it is an emphatic statement. It is making additional emphasis to say, He Himself is our peace. What is the emphasis on? Not peace, Christ. It is an emphatic statement that our peace is not a philosophy. Our peace is not a piece of paper like the Constitution, not an idea, not a system. It is not toleration. It is not coexistence. There is no power or purpose of man that will ever bring peace. There is only a person Christ. He is our peace. He himself is our peace. Our faith is in God, not in our thoughts, not in our assumptions. It is in Christ, not our consciousness. Our faith is in Him. Ephesians 2:20 just a few verses down says that our foundation is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone that there is a foundation of the apostles and prophets but there is no foundation without the cornerstone Christ Christ is the finishing of the foundation what was the foundation the prophets the old testament The apostles, the New Testament, and Christ. The apostles and prophets are the foundation, and they are only the foundation because they have been capstoned by Christ. It's like in Hebrews, it says, He in many times and in many ways through His prophets. Not in many times and in many broad ways. Not that God speaks to me in all kinds of ways. But in many times and in many ways through His prophets. He has spoken to his people but now he has spoken through christ it is finished his speaking to his people and the foundation is done it is the apostles and the prophets and christ we do not worship a book we worship a god let me say it again we do not worship a book we worship a god but that God has chosen to speak to us through the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, capstoned in the completing work of Christ, the finish of his plan. It's why the Word of God says, in this final age, in these last days. But the days have gone on, have they not? We're 2,000 years into the last days. How are they the last days? Because what's going to be done by God to prepare for salvation has been done. It has been accomplished in Christ. It is finished. And now, He Himself is our peace. He Himself. Our faith is in Christ. Not a book. And many would like to say that, and then they will say, because my faith is not in the book, I just follow Jesus. You're a Bible person. You're a Bible thumper. You always want to be about the Bible. I just follow Jesus. Now, I would ask, how do you follow him? I have a personal relationship with him. When was the last time you saw him? You don't have an answer for such. I would say, you have not seen him. I don't say that on my own authority. First Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. First John says, if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen? When Christians express that they have a personal relationship with Jesus, I understand what they mean. They mean that their life is not just that they have signed up to a list of documents. They mean they are following Christ. But Christian, if your personal relationship with Jesus ignores this book, you have no personal relationship with Jesus. Because this book is his authority on earth, by his authority, proclaimed by the prophets and the apostles proclaimed that this is the living, active Word of God. See, we follow Jesus who was a man who existed before that as God. We do not follow a book. But the book is the only authority of Him on earth. It is by the work of Christ, through the authority of the Word of God, and because of the power of the Spirit in the hearts of His people that you follow Christ and though the spirit works in you and you have a new heart your following is not your heart it is your god and the authority of your god is not that he has transformed your heart by your spirit by his spirit alone but that he guides your heart by what his word through the spirit the spirit and the word work together And I I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it's important. If I am going to make a statement such as, we do not follow a book, we follow a God, it is important to clarify why we follow the book then. Because the book is the authority of God on earth. It is the words he has given. And you might say, Jake, this is your idea. This is what you want. You are a western, Gentile, Greek, You like logic and outlines. I don't, actually. Dave was looking at my notes this morning, and he was annoyed because they weren't highlighted. But you could think, this is just my idea. I want to show you in the book. And you could say, that's circular reasoning. You're saying that the book has authority because the book says it has authority. Well, you say your mind and feelings have authority because you say your mind and feelings have authority. You choose authority sources. The world knows that you are no authority. There is no authority that is not circular reasoning. Why do you believe that mankind knows the best way to move forward? Because they've always thought that. And we keep moving forward. I'm going to take the collective thoughts of man. And that's where you're going to find unity. That's not very unified. That's confusing. Why does everyone who holds to history hold to a different opinion and argument? because there's no unity in what we believe about what has happened. You know it has unity, has consistency, the spoken word of God from Abraham through the prophets and the apostles. A book that endures the time, that endures through all generations, his spoken word. And that is why Peter says this. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For we, when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, Born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Notice what Peter is saying. We didn't follow clever ideas. We weren't conned into some network marketing system. We didn't have somebody lay out for us you could do this or do that or do this or don't you like this idea? Doesn't that sound good? Peter, like John, who says in the beginning of his letter, he says, we write to you because we have seen and we have touched and we have known Jesus Christ. Peter says, I knew Him. I didn't follow a story. I walked with the living God. And when God the Father came out of the clouds and put Jesus in all of His glory and proclaimed, this is my Son. I saw it happen. I was there. And what does does Peter say? Believe me, because I saw it. No, Peter doesn't proclaim his personal testimony. He proclaims the testimony of the Word of God. After he proclaims that he has seen God in the flesh, he has seen Him raised up in glory by God the Father. In verse 19, he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God, and as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Something incredible here. Peter has an incredible experience, and what does he say? I have something more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what I saw, what I touched, what walked with me. More fully confirmed than the present living of Christ before him, proclaimed in the transfiguration. What does he have that's so much more sure? The prophetic word. The prophetic word. And what does he mean by the prophetic word, right? You could say, yes, that's why we need current prophets. That's why we need people to come tell us. That's why if I'm going to marry someone, I need a prophet to tell me who to marry. If I'm going to make an investment, I need a prophet to tell me what to invest. If I have any problem, I need a prophet. You're not asking for a prophet. You're asking for a sooth slayer, slayer, whatever you want to call it. You're asking for a fortune teller. What does he say? No prophecy of Scripture, of the written Word. He's not talking about a prophetic Word. He's talking about the written prophetic Word. He says, there is more fully confirmed. How can it be that the book is more fully confirmed than Peter's own vision? And I'm not talking about the later vision of, like, the, the, the Gentile buffet, right? If you know what vision I'm talking about. If you don't, read Acts 10. It's real interesting. That's a different kind of vision. Peter's saying, no, this wasn't like God took me up. This wasn't like a lot of people say, like, God spoke to me. And my first question, I always want to be like, what do you mean? And usually you say, what do you mean? And they go, well, I mean like I was very inclined, is what they explain. I really felt like I should do this. Sometimes they will say, I heard an audible voice, right? Their own ears. Not commonly, but occasionally I hear such things. Peter, with his own eyes and his own ears, saw something, heard something. And what does he say? You know what's more trustworthy? The Word of God. Why? Why is the Word of God more trustworthy? He says, because the Word of God is not interpreted by the will of man. Your experience is interpreted by your own will. You've been healed. How so? Right, Lauren and I go through this every time God heals someone. Because we're like, well, was it by the hand of the doctors? Was it because they made it to the ER? Was it because of the ambulance? Was it? Do we really want to say this was a miracle by God? I don't know. It's hard to tell. It was gallstones. I don't know. When Jesus healed people, it was obvious and we wrestle with, is that God doing that or not? People, God does everything. He is the God of providence. We call it a miracle when He does outside of what we normally expect. But because He accomplishes what you normally expect, the healing of the hands of doctors on men, that does not mean it is not the miracle of the grace of God that you live in a time where doctors can heal people. Because we very know well that many people go to be healed by doctors and die. Though it is not common, it is possible. And in his providence that everyone who goes to a doctor doesn't die isn't evidence that we shouldn't trust doctors, nor is it evidence that God is not powerful. It is ongoing evidence that in his kindness, he has in providence caused us to live in a time where we can expect illness will lead to health. Many times in our lives. Before it eventually turns to death. So Peter does not interpret his life through what he's seen and heard in vision. Or in Jesus being there in the flesh. It's not that experience that Jesus that Peter says, This is my life verse, man. The transfiguration. This is what I live for. I was there. I'm here to tell everybody about the time I saw Jesus raised up. You don't understand. This will change your life. He says, no. No, it's not my experience. It's not the individual things that God has done in my life that the whole world needs to hear. Do you know what the world needs to hear? What cannot be of man's interpretation? What was not brought about by the will of man? The prophetic word of God. Sixty-six books by various authors that do not contradict, that proclaim the nature and the truth of God. Peter does not point to his own visions to know that he follows Jesus. He points to the Word. But let me say again, we do not worship a book. We worship a God. And He Himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. We don't come to know Jesus by logotheo, And you don't know what that means because I just made it up. It is the shift of theology, right? What does theology mean? It means the nature of God studied by man. And here's what we do as a society. We study, then we come to the conclusion this must be the nature of God. Ooh, I have thought so much about this, and I've come up with this system, this reasoning. I've listened to every voice. I listened to all the religions of the world. And through my study, I have found that God exists, and we know nothing else about Him. There is a God. I came to that conclusion. My friend, you could have had that conclusion so long ago with so much less work. There are trees outside, they did not come from nowhere. There were people walking around. They did not exist by their own desire. Something infinite created them. The world has proclaimed that from the beginning. We all know that. But this book proclaims the nature of God. So theology is the study of this book because this book is the proclamation of who He is. It is the prophetic word fully confirmed. We do not start the study of God by our own study and conclude who God is. We start by what he has proclaimed that we might know who he is. And he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. His word is the source of his authority on earth, and he personally is our peace. So we look to His Word for His authority over us, but it is not written in the Word that the Word is our peace or it will bring everlasting peace. It is the living Word, Christ, who brings peace. His Word gives wisdom to man. And how does it first give wisdom to man? It teaches them to fear God. His Word can make you wise, but it will not make you wise if your fear is not of Him. Rather than a fear of getting the book thrown at you It's not the book it is the God the God who does speak through the book and I just wanted to spend that time clarifying it because so many in our society want to say I follow Jesus and at the same time even if holding this up put it down and don't want to go back to it and when this disagrees with their lives they say How can we have unity? We want to be just like Jesus. We want to love one another, accept one another, no matter what. WWJD, what would Jesus do? How do you know what Jesus would do? You look at his book. He has made clear what he does. He has made clear who he is. It is not a vague connection to the person of Jesus on our own ideas that causes unity in the church. It is the very person of Christ proclaimed through the Word, but come as the living Word who has made us both one. Notice what it says. It does not say, "...He Himself is our peace, and if we are like Him, we can unify ourselves." It does not say, "...He Himself is our peace." So therefore, He just wants us to live like Him and create world peace. No, He takes two groups that are in incredible conflict, the Jews and the Gentiles, and He says, He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. He didn't give us a seminar. We learned much from Him coming. But the people of God are not unified by a seminar. The people of God are unified from the teaching of the Word only because the teaching of the Word points to the truth of Christ. People don't need to learn how to have peace with each other if that learning excludes the reconciling work of Christ. Because He Himself is our peace and He has made us both one. He hasn't taught us how to be one. He has done it. He has made us both one. He Himself is our peace. There is no peace outside of Christ. The power of peace. Look with me at the end of verse 14. The power of peace. He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances "...that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." The power of peace is salvation bought by the blood of Christ. Peace does not come from the collective reasoning of man. Peace is not found by all of us getting together and each of us giving our opinion and coming to a compromised solution, right? That's how man does ceasefires. That's how man ends current wars. That's how battles are stopped. Compromise is a good thing. But compromise is not peace. It is a temporary peace. Compromises is the sacrifice of one party and the other party to come together to say, you know what, we've both done wrong here, we can admit that. And we both need to do different things to move on in the future. That's how man finds peace. And that peace is only temporary. There was a time when mankind in the Western world thought, there is going to be no more war. We are ushering in an era of peace. And then, in the early 1900s, there were two wars. The war said to end all wars. The Greatest wars the world has ever seen, therefore, we title them World War I and World War II. And organizations and treaty organizations and pacts and commitments and conversations were sought before those wars to try to stop them and were sought after those wars trying to end all wars. And do you know what it has accomplished? We haven't had a world war, but we do not have peace, we have temporary compromise. But this world does not know peace. The work of man will never accomplish lasting peace. It can never end the dividing hostility of sin. It cannot solve the solution. But Christ has. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances He has abolished the law. The commandments expressed in ordinances. The requirements of God's people expressed by the proclamation of God. It says he has abolished the law. Why? I would encourage you, if you did not listen to the sermon last week, go back and listen. And and, and I sought to explain what I sought to explain to your children at Cultivate this week. The law exists not as something to tell us we will be righteous, the law is full of rules, right? And we have a saying in our society. Rules are meant to be broken. God, help us. Rules are not meant to be broken. Do you know what rules are meant to do? Rules are meant to show you you are broken. Rules are not meant to be broken, but the rules and the laws of God are given and you break them. And what should that say? Well, looking in yourself, you go, Rules must be meant to be broken. No, what it should do is say, God has commanded this. Now, I feel like I've done some of this, but something in my life causes me that I cannot obey this. What is wrong? And our conclusion is rules are broken. They're too hard. The rules must be wrong because I can't obey them. We've got to change the rules. That's what our society's doing. Too many people are breaking the law. What should we do? Change the law. God help us. Rules are not meant to be broken. They are meant to show you you are broken. And the Jews confused the purpose of the law. And as they were near God, they thought, look how close we are to God. And look who's behind us. The Gentiles. Dirty, uncircumcised Gentiles. We're near God. They're not. We must be righteous. Righteous. He's given us their law. They turn their back on the law and they start looking at the Gentiles. They're saying, man, they're dirty and we're clean. Doesn't it feel clean up here? Look over there, it's filthy. They need to turn around and look at the dividing wall. The wall's not between them and the Gentiles. The wall is between them and God. And the wall is the law. And the hostility that exists is not the current hostility between man. It is the hostility between God and man because man has broken his law. And the conclusion of the law was never to tell the people of Israel, you are holy. You can't read it very long without knowing they are not. Or without hearing God say, I will make you a holy people. The law was never intended to clarify and to purify man. It was intended to show man he could not be purified unless he depended on God. And many of the Jews and throughout the Old Testament we see know that. You read the Psalms of David, He does not proclaim his own righteousness. He proclaims the righteousness of God and compels and asks God to act out his promises, even in the imprecatory psalms. They are based on the righteous promises of God. But it says, Jesus has abolished the dividing wall of hostility. He has removed what is dividing us. How so? He has clarified, He has unveiled God for all humanity through Christ to say, look, the problem is not that you can't measure up to each other, the problem is you cannot be Christ. And in grace and forgiveness, Christ came not to proclaim the war, but to proclaim peace. To proclaim that you can be freed from the war of sin if your hope is in Christ. That the law and the prophets existed to proclaim He is holy and you are not. And it is not of no value. It is of great value. But if you miss the value of the Word, that it proclaims the character of God and your sin, and Jesus is the only solution, you have missed it all. You are creating your own wall like the Jews, like the Gentiles. Let, Let me try to Attempt to take this to street level, because that's not what I'm best at. I didn't grow up on the street. I don't even live on a street. I live on a dirt road. I'm not a rapper. But I can rhyme. Brother and sister are standing. Now you're waiting for me to rhyme, and that's not going to happen. Brother and sister are in the kitchen, right? And mom and dad give them a cookie. So I hand them the cookie. I hand it to sister. I give... The sister. I'm not going to use my own children. People say I shouldn't do that. I give the sister a cookie. She has the cookie. What does brother say? I want a cookie. No, I give it to her. It's my choice. I give it to her. I'm not even involved. Brother and sister are fighting. I want a cookie. What is he going to start doing? He's going to start reasoning with his sister why he should have the cookie. Have the cookie rather. You should be equal. This is equality. You're no better than me. I hope in my house they'd start resorting to biblical argument. We were both created in the image of God. What makes you think you deserve a cookie rather than me? Am I less of God because I was made a man and you're a woman? Just because you're more fair and beautiful, you deserve a cookie and not I? No, no, says sister. No, no, of course not. But mom and dad gave me the cookie, so they must assume that I am good and righteous. And I deserve the cookie, and I don't know if you deserve the cookie, so I'm going to keep it for myself, because I can't have the whole cookie if I split it and compromise with you. The only way to have the whole cookie is for me to keep it. See, you want my cookie. You don't want peace. I want the whole cookie because it will give me peace. Mm, but God says Share. And you are unwilling to share. Therefore, you are unrighteous, so I should have the cookie. Just as an example, so that you can be removed from your self-righteousness, and I get the cookie. Oh, the many webs of man. How we resort from arguments of equality to arguments of our own righteousness. To arguments about how we are equal, and then arguments about how we are better. How we go back and forth about how we should all make the decision and then those are insufficient to make the decision. We flip-flop from democracy to dictatorship. Why? Because we don't know how to create peace. We cannot find it in our collective reasoning and we cannot find it in the leadership of those who have more power than us. And I'm not saying we should never collectively reason or there should never be an earthly authority, but we should never look for peace anywhere else. And we should realize that in this life, if we are going to have peace, it is always compromised and always sharing. We can never have completely everything. Why? Because we are sinful and we live in a feudal world. Brother and sister will have to decide. They can have the whole cookie or they can share the cookie. How do they solve such a problem? They realize the cookie doesn't matter. Move on from the cookie. Let the cookie go. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You desire and you do not have. So what do you do? You fight and quarrel. You murder. You covet. Yet what should you do? Ask God. Depend on God. And if you ask God, I'm not saying you should go, you're right. God, please give me a cookie too. Please let mom and dad come back and give me a cookie. I really want a cookie. No. He says you ask because you want to spend it on your pleasures but on the purpose of God. So what should a brother and sister do? They should come to the conclusion, these are temporary things and we should share them. That's right and good. That's not socialism always. It's just sharing. God says share, people. That's what you tell your kids. But know that that type of life will never bring peace because in that type of peace, there are always two guilty parties with limited power. Hmm. But the peace we have is not like that. Where is our peace in Christ? What has he done? He has broken down the wall of hostility. How has he done it? By his blood. By his own blood. Christ has broken down and done what is not in our power. He has accomplished what we cannot accomplish. It says, Therefore, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what's called the circumcision, which is made by the, in the flesh by hands, man's reasoning, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How did they become one? Did Jews become Gentiles? No. Did Gentiles become Jews? No. Did the nations become Israel? No. No. Did Israel become the nations? No. They were made one. The people of God. The people of God. They were brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's what he goes on to say. That they would, he would create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both. Jew and Gentile, still referring to the earthly distinction of Jew and Gentile. But what has he done? He has not reconciled just the Jew, and he has not reconciled just the Gentile. He has reconciled both. To who? To one another? No. He might reconcile us both to God in one body. What just happened? Reconciliation did not come from the compromise of the Jews or the compromise of the Gentiles. It did not come from Jews becoming Gentiles or Gentiles becoming Jews. How did the compromise come? God created a new category. It is not a new category. It was the category promised from the beginning in Abraham. That God would make all the nations, what? A holy priesthood. And they are both one because what? They're no longer looking at each other, they're looking at God. They have been reconciled to one another because they are no longer moving at odds to one another, trying to find how can we live together, but they are now looking to God and saying how can we both live for God. And I am not saying this is the broad method of philosophy that all people need to accept that there is a God and move toward him. That's the variety of religions. There is one God. He Himself is our peace, Jesus Christ. And He Himself has made us both one by reminding us the dividing wall of hostility is not between us, each other, but God. He Himself is our peace. And therefore, He has removed the wall and we now are reconciled to God as one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility because we have been reconciled to God there is no longer a hostility over our earthly circumstances because they are not our real problem and the gospel makes that clear there is not peace by people looking to one another and saying i am colorblind i see no color what does that mean you see no distinction in people you think everyone should be like you or you think you should be like someone else or do you just mean you appreciate all cultures and you're trying to do that why don't you just say that I don't understand what you're trying to express because if you are colorblind you're like my poor friend David who can't play board games with us because he can't tell which pieces are his and ours and we make him lose it's not good to be colorblind it's a deficiency and it's painful for those who are deficient don't mock them What does it mean then? Saying, well, those who are in power, who have reigned, have held power, therefore, those who are not in power must become in power so that we can all be unified. We have all been subjected to their culture, therefore, we must subject them to our culture and that's the only way we will ever find peace. And that philosophy doesn't even speak peace. It's called social construct theory that is built on conflict. It recognizes the hostility of man and it proclaims that the only solution is to throw out those who have power and give it to those who don't. It is where feminism is rooted. It is where our current pluralistic society is rooted. It is all an idea that what's wrong with the world is authority. And authority removed, authority taken by good people, will clarify the truth. And it is a failure. And it is not a failure opposed to democracy. Because here's my fear. I say that, and some of you are like, yeah, we need to go back to the founding fathers. Those dudes were jacked up. They were sinful. There was a dividing wall of hostility between them and God, and it was sin. There is no time after Adam and Eve's fall that mankind has found peace. Democracy was not the solution to mankind. I believe it is the best we have available. The best way to live in compromise. But it is not the government I am going to die for. The government rests on his shoulders. The prince of peace. The king of kings. The lord of lords. And under him the government shall always increase. Because he is forever powerful. So Please don't hear me as politically slamming the left. And upraising the right. Because I'm not looking to my left or right. I want to be straightforward at Christ. That's what reconciles. That's where the people of God must live. And that's what was proclaimed to the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus who could not find peace. They could not find unity. Because the Jews were saying, you've got to become us. You've got to do what we need to do. And I don't know what the Gentiles were saying. I know what people would like to put there. That they should have given the Gentiles power. They should have given up their authority we could interpret all kinds of ways here's what god says needs to happen stop looking at the flesh and look at your sin and look at christ who has solved your sin and has made both the jew and the gentile in america we distinguish this argument the black and the white which leaves out an entire category of people being most everyone because most people are shades of brown or pink not black or white we create dividing lines. We do not need to say those lines don't exist. But what we need to say is that the world, the only solution is Christ. And that's what Christ preached. Look at the end of the verse. For He Himself is our peace, that He has reconciled us both in the preaching of our peace. And He came and He preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. What does that mean He preached? Where is peace found? Christ. What did Christ preach? Himself. Christ preached Himself. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. His kingdom. Put your faith in Me. Put your hope in Him. He is our peace. And He therefore came and preached Himself. The only solution to peace, not a compromise, a full and complete payment for the sins of his people that they might be forever reconciled to God. And therefore, they both have been made one in him. And their lives are no longer set in their temporary circumstances of gender and ethnicity. Of location and geography, of culture and tradition. They are secondary issues to their identity as God's people, forever His, reconciled in the flesh. How does this mean we should live in the world then? You might think, Jake, what about all of these political things going on? How do we make peace with these people? Where do we fall on these? I'm a young man. I'm not running for political office because I don't have political answers. I have one answer, Jesus. That answer won't get me elected. I don't really want to be elected. I don't want to try to work out temporary compromises with the nations of the world. I want to proclaim to the nations of the world, there is one means by which peace will come, and that is Christ. I pray that you will live to do the same. That you will take care in all of the secondary issues. that, That you as a Jew will make sure you're not just expecting people to meet your cultural standard. And you as a Gentile will not say, well I learned this and I learned that so this is the right way. But you will say, I must submit to the word of God. It is the authority. And you will live to find peace in the person of Christ under the authority of his word. By the power and regenerating work of his spirit that he has made you one in him, to pursue him. And as every trial, every circumstance of earth, you will not become discouraged because you know here there will be no peace without Christ. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good. We thank you, Father, that as you planned and purposed and said that you would send your Son You did not begin to work with the prophets and work through time and come to the time of your son and think, I still have one more point. I have not finished my work. Your plans are perfect. You do all your work and you do it on time. I pray, God, in your grace, you would continue the faithful work in your people. We thank you, God, as we look and we see the world and it seems as though things are chaotic and destructive and no one is in control. Even those who claim power don't have real power. I pray you would help us to surrender to your authority, that you work all things to the good of your people, that you would unite us not in where we have come from, but in where we are going because of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray.